0: Welcome to A Fostered Life, the show in which we explore the various facets of foster care through the voices of the many people who participate in the system. I'm your host, Christy Tennant-Crispin, and this is Episode 6. One of the things I've noticed over the years is that while I have a lot to learn from other more experienced foster parents, mental health professionals, books, and more, the people who've taught me more than anything else about how to be a good foster parent, or foster caregiver if you prefer, is children who are or were in foster care. The kids who've come and gone from our home as well as adults who are former foster youth have taught me more than anyone about what it's like for kids in foster care and what they need most from those of us who step in to care for them when they're in trauma or transition. One of the things I love about this podcast is that it's giving me a chance to connect with people like today's guest, former foster youth who are willing to share from their experiences in order to help foster parents like me do a better job caring for our kids. Brittany entered foster care when she was 16, but her journey with the Department of Child Services and CPS started way before that, years earlier. Brittany spent most of her childhood bouncing around between friends and family members, going from school to school or sometimes not going to school at all, experiencing many forms of trauma and violence before finally entering foster care as a teen. When she did, she landed in a home where her life changed dramatically for the better. And I know that's not always the case, but for her it was. As I listened to Brittany, I noticed a theme that comes up over and over when I hear from former foster youth, and that theme is presence. What foster youth need more than anything else when their own parents are unable or unwilling to care for them? is a caring adult who is consistently present, someone who is there for them through thick and thin and able to give unconditional love and patient guidance. It's so important for us foster parents to hear from those who have lived through the system. So with that, here's my conversation with Brittany. So I always ask people to start out by just sharing kind of where and when, how your life first intersected with the foster care system. And you, you gave me a good background in, um, in our earlier correspondence, but can you just share a little bit with me about, and, and the people listening, this is being recorded, um, about how and when your life first intersected with, um, with foster care?
1: So it's really, like I said, it's hard to explain Exactly when my life intersected with foster care, because I didn't enter the system until I was fifteen or sixteen years old, but from the time I was four, I had d c s which is Department of Children's services in and out of my life and coming mm-hmm. and going constantly and I was trying kind to of, I was bounced around from like family member to family member before they officially put me into state's custody right and the only reason that I went into state's custody is because at the time I was living with my aunt and she thought that it was best if I went somewhere else that was more therapeutic and um hands-on I guess so mm-hmm. but whenever I was 12 or 13, my brother went into a group home. He was put on truancy his freshman year, I think it was, and they sent him to a group home, and from there, he went into foster care, and I'm not really sure what happened there. I guess they didn't really know that I existed because I was not enrolled in school either, but they just, they weren't really looking that far into it because he was in high school and he was the one choosing not to go you know
0: so and how old were you at that time where is that when you were like a teenager
1: yeah I was around 12 or I think maybe Mm -hmm. I was 13 whenever he entered the system and Mm -hmm. I was still at home
0: so, your brother went into foster care and went into a group home, but you were pretty much just like, they. it almost seemed like the department was just kind of like, okay, well, she's with family, so we're just going to leave it alone?
1: Um. Yeah, I kind of seemed that way. It was either that or they didn't really know that I was even, like, there. Like, they didn't know that I existed because I had been bounced around so many times. Like, I probably lived with 10 different people. And then and not including, like, the amount of, like, the friends and stuff that I lived with off and on. So they were probably were really confused as to where I was at because I had been bounced around so many times.
0: Yeah. And so... Um, all that time you, you, you said that they, they, you had your first interactions with the department when you were small, like maybe three or four years old, but then, um, but they never, they never placed you into foster care. Um, but you bounced around a lot. Were you in school, in and out of school? What, what did that look like for you? Um, it's really, um, okay,
1: so all altogether, like, a lot of my memories have, like, come and gone, like, it's like, it's you know how, uh, okay, I have PTSD, so whenever you have PTSD, your memories kind of, like, go, like, your brain kind of blocks certain times of your life where you yeah. experience trauma, mm-hmm. so it's really mm-hmm. hard to de- explain exactly what schools I went to and when I went to them, but altogether, mm-hmm. I went to, like, 14 different schools off and on. Like, wow. my sixth grade year, I was put on truancy, and then seventh grade, I did not go to school at all. I'm Well, I may have went, like, 10 days at the beginning of the school year, and then I just stopped going. And then... Yeah. After my first year in seventh grade, they, DCS came and took me out of my sister's house and put me with my aunt, and I got back in school, and I was able to catch up and skip the eighth grade and go to straight from uh, seventh grade to ninth grade.
0: So you must be pretty bright to be able to do that, <laughs> I don't know too many people who could... <laughs>
1: Honestly, I do not know how I did it, but I will not complain.
0: (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And so, yeah, I can only imagine. So during all that time, um, uh, I mean, did you kind of know? I I kind of wonder sometimes, because I find that children tend to adapt to whatever feels normal to them, even when what feels normal is what. A stable, you know, a, a person living a more stable environment would say that's not normal. So, I mean, you know, kids bouncing around from home to home, um, not not normal, not healthy. Did it feel? Were you aware that this is like, hey, this isn't right. This isn't what should be happening to me.
1: Whatever. I uh, okay. Well, honestly, I didn't realize any of it was bad. Were horrible until I lived, until I moved in with my aunt, which I was probably around, I think I was 14 whenever I first moved in with my aunt. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Possibly 13, because it wasn't long after my brother went into a group home, because I think it was like a year after my brother went to a group home. And Mm -hmm. she didn't really want me around my siblings because they were following in the same footsteps that my biological parents had went into, which was, you know, breaking the law, in and out of jail, on drugs, you know, stuff like that, and they weren't having anything to do with their kids, et cetera, so she didn't really want me to be around that, my aunt didn't, and I resented her for it, I truly did, I mean, it... Like, I grew up with them. My brother and my sister were, like, my parents. Mm-hmm. So whenever somebody tells me that I can't hang out with them and I can't go see them or talk to them, you know, I I didn't understand. And then right. probably um, after the first, okay, whenever my brother ate shot a foster care, And whenever he Mm -hmm. aged out of foster care, he went straight back with my parents and was in jail within a month of being out of the system. And so that's probably whenever it hit me, like, I can't be around this. I mean, I'm growing up. I'm a teenager. I've got my own responsibilities. And here I am begging my brother to stay off drugs and stop breaking the law and get back in school. Mm
0: -hmm. So it's a lot of pressure.
1: Yeah, it was. It was a it was a lot.
0: So then okay, so let's fast forward now <laughs> to a turning point in your life around when you were sixteen or so. Um you finally were finally officially in foster care and um you were not able to go back to your aunt's house and you um you had Um, began to kind of get some help, I think, for your PTSD and other things that you were struggling with. And then you ended up being placed in a foster home, correct?
1: That is correct.
0: So what was that like for you? So now this was your first time being moved in with perfect strangers, right? I mean, you didn't know them at all.
1: Um, Actually, I did know that my, who is now my adoptive parents, this is actually the home that my brother was in. Mm. Yes.
0: So your brother had been placed with them, but that did not work out in adoption. He ended up aging out, but then you were placed in their home. And can you tell me a little bit about... What that ended you know, like? What that transition looked like, and kind of what they, what kind of an environment that was in their home, and and um, yeah, just how it went for you from there.
1: Um, honestly, it was difficult because I had never been in a one hundred percent stable environment that I would consider, you know, safe and healthy. So, moving in with them it was different but I was happy because I was getting the help that I needed I was in school they gave me the support that I need and then they gave me space whenever I needed it and it was like they knew exactly what I needed before I even knew that I needed it
0: Were they experienced foster parents like did they know about trauma and they knew about like PTSD I think they've
1: been fostering for eight years, maybe longer. So they've been fostering for a really long time. So they were very experienced, especially with teenagers, because that was their main focus was fostering teenagers. Mm So, yeah, they were experienced at the end. They had already kind of known how I was and how I acted and stuff and what I had been through because of my brother being here.
0: What were some of the ways that you felt supported? Cause that's a pretty, I mean, I'll just say like, for me as a foster parent, having done this for the last five and a half, almost six years now, um, it, I've seen, it just, it's so hard for a lot of times for kids to go from, the chaos of what they've known to like a more structured environment. And, um, what were some of the things, like when you look back on it, when you first moved in, you're first in their home, did they like sit you down and say, um, here are, here are our expectations for you as you're living here? You know, did they put kind of parameters around things like homework and going to school and screen time and stuff like that? Or did they kind of give you a lot of freedom? What was that like?
1: Um, I don't want to say that they gave me a lot of freedom, but they, they're definitely lenient, and so, whenever I first came into their home, they did lay down some rules, you know, but it was just the typical thing, like, shower every day, because some kids that they had didn't like to shower, because they weren't used to it, which is very sad, and then, sorry, keeping my room clean and getting up and going to school and making good grades. That was pretty much the basic rules that they gave me. And, you know, they were like, don't be sneaking out of the windows, don't be doing stuff behind our back that, you know, you can get in trouble for and stuff like that, but... When and if I did make a mistake and do something that I could get in trouble for, they supported me. You know, they let me know that it was wrong, and they discussed it with my caseworkers, and we worked through it. They, like, shut me out because I made a mistake. Right.
0: So you, they created an environment where you were free to f- make mistakes and fail, and they kind of continuously provided um, support and they didn't like say to you kind of get your act together or you're out of here. They were, they were patient with you.
1: Yes, they were very patient. And I am so thankful for that because this is probably the first and only home that I have ever been in that with parents that have been patient with. Yeah. So yeah, um, it was very, um, helpful to me, and it meant a lot to me. So,
0: hmm. And then they went ahead and wanted to make it official with you. Um, what was it like for you when they approached you about adoption?
1: Um, it was, for, honestly, for me, it was awkward because they were like, come in here, can we talk to you for a second? And they were like, the way that they were sitting, it was, I knew it was something serious, and I was like, oh, gosh, am I in trouble? And they were like, have you done something to be in trouble? And <laughs> I mean, I just thought it was kind of <laughs> fun. Yeah. I don't know. I'm really awkward in situations like that. So I was like, sure, let's talk. And so they said that they wanted to adopt me. And my mom, of course, she got emotional. And I was emotional, but... They just kind of sat me down and told me that they wanted to adopt me, that they had been thinking about it for a long time, and that it was probably the best time to do it since my biological parents had just stolen my credit and wow. we were back. So.
0: Wow was it a long time between when you decided to go ahead with adoption and when it was finalized? What was that like? Uh, Because we've adopted three children, so I know what the process is like here. What was that like for you? Was it quick once you decided, or was there still a long time to wait?
1: Um, I think it took around a year for the adoption that we finalized from the time that we actually Started to get the ball rolling, you know, like getting a lawyer and filling out the paperwork and stuff like that. It was pro. It's probably took about a year, but Mm -hmm. I am still waiting on like a new birth certificate and stuff like that, and uh, with my new name on it. And until then, technically, I'm my last name is still the same as it Mm -hmm. has always.
0: Yeah. We have a child right now who, um, we are on track to adopt and he has already started using his new name. Um, he, he's a little too young to understand, like legally, you're still your other name, but we've given him permission to tell people his name is, you know, our last name because he wants to, cause he, he's been bouncing a lot and he, he understands, yeah. you know, what it's like. I also hear from people though, in the adoption world who, um, who, Well, that whole idea of like getting a new birth certificate, can you tell me what it means for you that you get a new birth certificate with your new name and your, um, your adoptive mom and dad's names as your parents on your birth certificate? What does that mean to you for that to be the case?
1: Honestly, it means a lot to me, not only because they, I claim them as my parents and, I think of them as my family, but nobody else can say, you know, they're not your parents, like, because they are. They're my parents, and a lot of people don't understand that adoption is, like, it was a real thing, so Mm whenever you you tell them, yeah, they're my parents, but they didn't, you know, give birth to me. They're not my biological parents or whatever, you know. A lot of people don't Mm -hmm. understand, but... Nobody can tell me that they are my parents, like I just said. And another thing is with the new names, I can't. Whenever I get pulled over or something, you know, for having a break light out or something, Mm -hmm. every Mm -hmm. time they see my last name, it's like two cops come to my um, car, and or whenever I go into like the DMV to renew my tags, they see my last name and they're like judging. Anybody who knows my last name in this mm. area kind of has knows that the last name has a bad rep, like a bad mm. reputation. And stuff. So yeah. not having to feel belitt- belittled and stuff or judged because of my last name is just, it's awesome.
0: So you've gotten a fresh start in, in some way. I mean, a fresh start um, a new identity in a lot of ways. And, um, this is kind of like giving you this, this chance to build your own legacy, I guess, and to be part of a a family legacy that doesn't have the same cycles and, you know, things that, that have kind of plagued the family that you were born into. Right. Yeah what is then the reaction of your birth family to this shift in your life have you had conversations with people in your birth family about about your kind of your new life um
1: yes and no like a lot of my birth like i have plenty of great aunts and cousins and stuff and whenever i change my last name to What it is now for my old name, everybody was like, did you get married? You know, what's going on? Because I didn't want to say anything until I knew it was 100% for sure going to happen because I didn't want to get my hopes up. So Mm -hmm. whenever I told my aunt, she, you know, she was kind of like, okay, you know, that's good. I'm glad for you and stuff. And then... I don't think, I don't really think that my great aunts understand that I'm adopted and I have a new family that I am going to spend with on Christmas and holidays and, you know, stuff like that. But, you know, they're still my family, too. It's just, I... I don't know. I don't really know how to explain it. Like it's really hard to explain it to some, like my biological family, like mm-hmm. my great aunts, stuff, because they are good people and I love them to death, and I will always be in their lives. Yep. But for me to tell them, you know, I have other great aunts from another family, but they are also my family. It's really confusing. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, I get that. I do get that cuz we've had I mean that's some, you know in our family two two of our, our children two of our children are still very connected to original family members. And so we just sort of try to say, you know, there's enough love to go around. Like there's plenty <laughs> of room for biological family and adoptive family and you know, we're all just one big happy family. So, but um you so you have alluded a little bit and in your message to me you wrote a little bit more extensively about the nature of some of the traumas that you've experienced in life and i don't really i mean I, you can share as much about that as you want i i would love to ask though you you have experienced let's just say a lot of trauma you've experienced violence you've experienced threats um over the course of your life you've seen a lot you've you've been, you've witnessed a lot um and obviously that doesn't go away with being adopted. Um, You still carry in your body and in your mind years of this trauma. Um, How is that now? Like, what are you, how are, how is that in your life? And uh, how are you kind of coping or growing? Because obviously you are on, you have like, you have a, a, a vision for your life, That you want it to be different. You want it to be, you know, healthy and you have hope now, like in a way that you haven't had in the past. Um, What, how does that all still affect you and how are you working through it now?
1: Honestly, over time, my, um, you know, PTSD and my anxiety and stuff has gotten better. But, you know, there's always still triggers, and some days I have bad days, some days I have good days, and um, you're like you said, it never goes away. Like, it's always going to be there. I'm always going to have specific things that I can't talk about or be around, you know, stuff like that, but... I am in counseling, and I have a great support system, and I, I uh, like, do arts and stuff like that to, you know, kind of relax sometimes, and, you know, all you can do is work through it, and having PTSD, like I said before, whenever our conversation first started, a lot of memories are, like, hidden from you. Like, your mind just kind of blocks those memories out. And it's so hard when somebody asks you about where you are at this point in your life because I don't have the things I don't know. And, like, in school you have to write autobiographies and stuff like that. And, you know, you don't want to share all of those art deep dark secrets and trauma and stuff like that with your teachers or your tra or your uh friends and stuff because a lot of people's not gonna understand it. But I have gotten to the point where if somebody wants to ask me about it, you know, I'll explain it to an extent depending on the person and I have like probably about a year ago I wouldn't be able to talk about any of any trauma that ever happened to me, all the bad things and stuff, without breaking down 100% and, like, just shutting down. Like, i want to be able to talk about it. And now that I know that I don't have to go back to those situations and I have a forever family and I have a great support system and stuff, it's a lot easier for me to talk about it and deal with it than, rather than to push it
0: aside and act like it never happened. Yeah. It's so interesting because I think a lot of people who are outside of this world and haven't experienced, um, you know, haven't either supported children who were, you know, who had experienced trauma or were themselves, those kids might not understand why a 19 year old would want to be adopted, you know? Um, but for, you were 19, right? When you were adopted.
1: Um I I was 19 whenever the uh adoption process started but I was 20 whenever I officially went through.
0: Right. And I think some people kind of think to themselves, oh, you know, by the time you're 18, you're you're an adult, so why would you need to be adopted? But it means so much more than, you know, being legally being an adult or not adult, it's a it's a it's part of your family. It's part of knowing that you have a place to belong, a safe, steady place to go for holidays, and to always have some place to go for dinner on Sundays or wh- whatever it's going to look like for your family. Um, it's so much more than just like, okay, well, now that you're 18, you know, um, can you talk a little bit, you had said that you have been part of some extended foster care. Can you talk a little bit about what that means? Because I think a lot of people listening might not understand that you don't just, things don't just end necessarily when you're 18. There are supports in place for people beyond the age of 18. Can you talk a little bit about that for what it's looked like for you? Yeah, a lot
1: of people don't know that uh, extension of foster care services even exists. Like they just think, you know, you're in foster care whenever you turn 18, you age out and it's over with, which a lot of people do that. But there are support systems in place, you know, like um, I was in something called Set Services, which you meet with somebody every week and they kind of, Talk to you about what's going on, and you make up a plan, like a goal, whether it's saving money, or shopping on a budget, or you know paying your bills on time. You know they're all they're there to support you and help you work through that. And they DCS, as long as you are an extension of foster care services, you know you have to in school, which I am. I'm enrolled in college, and they help pay for it, and as long as they're paying for it, I'm going to continue to go because, you know, furthering your education is one of the most important things in life that you can do, and so I have to meet with caseworkers and stuff once a month and go over what's going on in my life, and if I need anything, if everything's good, and they ask me how I'm doing in school and stuff like that. And I have to go to court once a year so that it can be approved for me to stay in extension of foster care services because if I'm out here partying and getting drunk every weekend and going to jail, you know, DCS isn't mm-hmm. gonna allow me to be in there, and it's just mm-hmm. foster care services. So they just kind of want to make sure that I'm on the right track and that I'm doing good and stuff. And they will be there until you're 21, as long as you want it. And after you turn 21, they they stop doing the funding and stuff, but they're always, you know, making sure that you know they're there especially mindset yeah. therapists, you can stay with my set until I think you're 26 years old and they just kind mm-hmm. of, you know, help you make set goals and accomplish those goals, you know?
0: Right. Yeah. I think cause people don't really think about or realize that um, so much of what forms our expectation for ourselves about, life happens during our formative years, um, early childhood and even adolescence. That's where we're learning kind of what adulthood looks like. And if we haven't a, a, a good, healthy model of what that looks like, then suddenly we're expected to or the kids are expected to be ready to launch into even just, you know, how to apply for a job, how to open a bank account, um, how, what all goes into getting your own apartment. I mean, there are just so many things that you don't just wake up at 18 knowing or 21 even and know. So having these organizations that provide some, some coaching for people who wouldn't have gotten that necessarily at home or didn't get it in time is so important. Um, I would love to kind of wrap up in this, you know, here, but I would love to ask you if you're talking, imagine that you are looking at some brand new foster parents, just getting into foster parenting, really have, have no idea necessarily what they're doing. What are some of the things that you want them to know um, and do for the kids who come into their care? Um, you
1: know, I've been thinking about this question since I had first, Started to talking to you about doing this podcast, and it's so hard to sum up something like sum it up to one thing that you would tell them. But I'd say that the number one thing that I would say to a brand, a brand new set of foster parents is that, you know, trauma never goes away. No matter how much you work, it's always going to be there. Over time, it will get better, over time, it may get easier. But that child will always have those memories of the worst times in their life. And the best thing that you can do is just not give up on them. And to let them know, you know, you're here for them and you're not leaving. You're here to support them or give them space when they need it and so on and so forth. But never blame the child for something that has happened to them in the past. Because a lot of people, you know, they don't understand that or they just think that the child's over-exaggerating. You know, if a child has a temper tantrum, it's it's a little bit different. But, you know, if they're shutting down and, and super upset over something that happened in their past, like, they can't control that, most likely. Like, that's something mm-hmm. that you have to work on them with. And, mm-hmm. I mean, just can't give up on them like they need the support and they may need support for the rest of their lives to get through it you never know
0: yeah yeah I I this theme comes through over and over and over in my conversations with people I interview people I meet in different groups because I meet a lot of people who are involved in the system in some way, whether kids or parents or foster parents or social workers. And it just seems like this theme of presence, like steady, consistent presence, like I'm not giving up on you. I'm not going anywhere. You can, you know, I'm, I'm not blaming you like just that, that presence just seems to be the overarching, most important thing that kids, kids really need from their foster parents. Yeah, that's,
1: I mean, a lot of kids that come into the system have never had a real support system. And, you know, a lot of those kids feel like they're alone because they're in the system with brand new people. They have all these caseworkers coming in and out all the time, asking them questions and stuff, and they're just... It's really hard, and it's really confusing, and a lot of children do not understand, you know, what's happening. Like, their entire life that they've ever known previously has just been ripped away from them, and they have to just kind of go with the flow. So, knowing that them, whenever they know that they have somebody there that they can talk to and somebody that cares for them, I agree that that is one of the most important things for that child for
0: any child. Yeah. For any child. Yep. Yep. Well, you shared with me in your message, uh, one of the messages that we shared that um, you hope to someday be a foster parent. And I can tell you that you're exactly the kind of person who needs to be a foster parent. I think you're going to be such a blessing. And I, I just, I, I hope that does happen for you. I think that, you know, you, you have so much to give and I'm really grateful that you wanted to share some of your story with, with me today.
1: Yeah, um, I'm glad that you have given me the opportunity to talk to you and, you know, kind of share my story and my thoughts and stuff on foster care and foster parenting. I think that we need more foster parents. It is a very important thing right now. Like, where I live, there are more kids in the system than there are foster parents. And, you know, more and more come in every single day, so... Hopefully, one day I can be a foster parent and help other children.
0: Say that issue is the case nationally. I mean, there's pretty much no place in our country where there aren't more kids that are coming into care than there are foster parents. There's a real need for not just more foster parents, but honestly, more um, good foster parents who who are taking the time to learn about trauma. I think that's one of the another thing besides being present. I think foster parents really need to do the hard work of studying and taking some online classes or workshops or just, you know, webinars or whatever, even just my, my resources. Like I try to really um, educate people on um, how trauma affects children as they develop, you know, early tra- trauma, um, And then, you know, on through adolescence and how it, how it impacts like, for the rest of their life, you know, it can anyway. And so, um, I think just knowing that it's not just enough to be well-meaning and to be, um, to want to give a child a safe place, but you also need to be prepared for how their trauma is going to even trigger you. And, you know, if you have a child who out of room trauma is raging or, you know, being destructive or any of those things, if you're not prepared for that and aware of it and aware that this is part of it for a lot of kids, um, you're going to be able to last, you're going to burn out you know, And so I think that's the other message that I have is just to really know it's not just enough to be a good, well-meaning foster parent, but it needs to be foster parents who are informed about trauma and the effects of trauma and how to help kids um, heal and move past their trauma. Yes.
1: I, I mean, I myself am a foster child, and I have experienced my own trauma, but being in the system – and actually being placed with, you know, other children, it's just like, I thought that I had been through so much. And then right now, you know, we have this three-brothers-sibling group, and I can't go into great detail about it, obviously, but mm-hmm. they all have different... Um, Traumas, like they experience the same thing, but the way that their body reacts to it and the way that they take it in is completely different than e than the other one so and I mean, yeah. we have one destructive and we have one that's sad, and we have one that's just happy go lucky because he doesn't understand it, and you know they all experience the same trauma, but like I said a second ago, it has affected them all three differently, and I mean it's so crazy mm-hmm. to just sit back and watch that happen like. You know, like you try to be there, you try to understand, but if you don't understand it, you know, it's it's hard.
0: Yeah, and in my experience, a lot of times the ones who are the most destructive and kind of angry and ragey, they tend to get the most attention because, you know, they're they're demanding it. While the one who might cope with the trauma by like going to sleep or shutting down, because they're not creating big issues. A lot of times yeah. they get overlooked or you think they're, Oh, they're doing okay. They're just tired all the time. No, <laughs> that's their, yeah. that's their trauma. I mean, you know, and, uh, if you don't know that, and even the happy go lucky ones, you know, I think it's, a uh, And an informed foster parent knows not to assume that just because a child is acting happy-go-lucky that they're not affected, you know? Sometimes you have to do some deep digging to make sure, you know, and to just ensure that a child is dealing with whatever they've been through. Otherwise, it will come up at some point in some way, you know? Definitely. Definitely. Well, you have been so insightful, and um, I just really appreciate it. And I just wish you all the best. I, I'm so excited for you and your future. I'm excited for your family, and um, I, I, I have a lot of respect for your foster, your, I shouldn't say foster, for your parents. And um, I just love, I love that you um, have found a, a place and a family um, where you can thrive and flourish, and I just wish you all the best. I appreciate that so
1: much. Thank you.
0: You've been listening to a fostered life podcast. For more information and resources for foster parents, please visit afosteredlife.com where you'll find blog posts, YouTube videos, and social media links so you can connect with others on the foster parenting journey. If you're interested in supporting my work at A Fostered Life, please go to afosteredlife.com and click on the tab Support My Work. That will take you to my Patreon page where you can become a patron. Just $1 a month helps offset the costs of producing these resources and enables me to offer them freely to new and prospective foster parents, and I'm grateful for the support of my patrons. Also, if you're enjoying this podcast, please take a moment to rate A Fostered Life on iTunes. It would help me out so much. Thanks for listening, and thanks for caring about foster care.